The Old Testament does not get great ratings. Uh, most sermons, most Bible studies, most Bible reading, it's centered around the New Testament. And that's understandable. The Testament, it means the, the covenant. And after all, we are in the New Covenant. So I get that. But the Old Testament still has something to say. And it says them on a level that you've probably never realized before. So if you're somewhat familiar with the story of Israel in the Old Testament, you probably know about how they got out of Egypt, and then they went through the wilderness wanderings, and then they got to the promised land. But did you know that Israel's experiences during that time have a direct parallel to your Christian life? In fact, what I'm going to show you today will make you reflect on where you've been, where you are, and where you're going. And if you feel defeated, I'll give you an answer for how to live victoriously. Learn all about it today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. You know, I say that at the beginning of every episode. I mean, this is truly what that is going to be in its purest form, how every small piece of the Bible is telling one big story. You're going to see that today. You're going to see what the big story is, and I, I hope it'll kind of blow your mind. Whether you're a new Christian or if you're a veteran Bible reader, this is a podcast for you. We just want to make God's word make more sense to you. And that's what we try to do with every episode. So my name is Luke Taylor. I'm a minister, and um, I read my Bible at least four times a week. I actually try to read it every single day. But if you read it at least four times a week, you are in a very special category of people. You are in the top 25% among Bible reading Christians. I get those numbers from a study. It was sent to me by my buddy, Nate Vinio. He hosts the Something to Not On podcast. Um, if you want to go back and listen to a recent episode, I did an interview with him about his show. But he's another guy who loves the Bible. He shared a, a study with me. I think it was from the Bible Engagement Project. And this study said that only one out of every four Christians reads the Bible at least four times a week. Okay, it's not a study of all people, not like all Americans. It was just people who identify as Christians. And they asked them, how often do you read the Bible? Only a fourth of them read it at least four times a week. Okay. More than a third of them, okay, so 34%, say they never read the Bible at all. A third of self-identified Christians say they never even read the Bible at all, zero times a week. More Christians will read the Bible zero times a week than those who read it four times a week. <laughs> that might surprise you, that might not, but that's what the data says. Now, what I would have liked the Bible Engagement Project to do is just to ask one question further, how many of these Christians ever read the Old Testament. And, you know, as I said in the intro, nothing wrong with you if you prefer the New Testament. I mean, I understand why that there's a greater focus on the, the New Testament. But the Old Testament, it is four-fifths of the Bible. And in my experience, most Christians rarely ever take a look at what it has to say. Uh, they might read the Psalms, they might read Proverbs, but a lot of times that's about it. Well, I guess there's some studies in Genesis, but other than that, you know, they tend to, if they know the story of Exodus and the Ten Commandments, it's because they watched a movie called The Ten Commandments, you know, that was made a long time ago, or The Prince of Egypt, maybe that one. But they don't really dig into what those 
what these verses, what those chapters have to say back in the Old Testaments of our Bibles. And they've struggled to find the relevance of it to modern life today. And so, sadly, that chunk of the Bible goes unread. Again, nothing wrong with you if you prefer the New Testament. I'm just happy to know you're even reading the Bible, because according to the data, you know, if you're at least reading the Bible, you're doing better than most. But I I think that Christians who ignore the Old Testament, they're really missing out on something. And so you're going to hear a little bit of what that is today. This is episode 97 of the Cross References podcast. And so I've been publishing roughly once a week for almost two years now. And we're coming up on episode number 100 of the show. And I've got an exciting announcement about all that. Um, probably I'm going to announce it next time, but it's got some neat things in the, in the works. It, ever since I started this podcast, though, I always wanted to talk about something called typology. And I'm finally doing it here, 97 episodes in. This is something I've always wanted to really get into. It's hard to know where to start with typology because it's kind of a, a boring word, <laughs> you know. But probably I think what you might be more familiar with is patterns, okay? Biblical patterns, repetition. And not just patterns, but the reason for these patterns. Like, what is the pattern that we see in Scripture? What is that communicating to us when we see these patterns taking place? I'll give you an example of this, okay? And what I'm telling you today, this is not some concept that some Bible scholar came up with in a library somewhere, okay? This is straight from the pages of Scripture, what I'm talking about. But, I mean, this thing about noticing the patterns, this is taught in the Bible itself. But what is typology? I'll give you, this is kind of a non-academic definition, but typology is when something happens in the Old Testament and that thing corresponds to something in the New Testament, okay? So when something happened, you might say a long time ago, but it's meant to show a pattern that will replicate in the future. And so in typology, the thing that happened a long time ago, that's called the type. And the thing that happens way off in the future is called the anti-type. Uh, here's a good example of this, those Old Testament sacrifices, and you've probably recognized before how they prefigure the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The, the Passover lamb, you know, that's the most obvious thing, right? That the Passover lamb was slaughtered, and the lamb represents Christ, and the killing of the lamb so that the death angel would pass over the house. You know, that's a symbolic picture of how Jesus was killed so that our sins could be forgiven and that we could be saved. You know, there's a lot of parallels right there. There's kind of a, there's a pattern. There's a sequence of events that takes place right there in the Old Testament. And that would be the type. And then that sequence of events was replicated in a different way in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus. And that would be the anti-type. So that's a pretty easy concept, I think, for the average Christian to understand. The Passover lamb's a really, really obvious one, that, that it was a symbol of Jesus and the cross. And what's fascinating about that picture of that God is showing us through that is, you know, God thought up this symbol more than a thousand years before God showed us what the symbol was pointing to. You know, think about that, that God gave us the symbol first, that the the law was a tutor, okay? This thing of doing the Passover dinner, right? Remembering the Passover lamb and all that, you know, this was all teaching us about something that was going to happen later, So the symbol came first, and then what the symbol was pointing to, which was Jesus, he came later. First, God gave us the template for understanding sacrifice, and then later God gave us the real sacrifice. And that is how types and shadows work. Okay, so the lamb was a type, Jesus was the anti-type, the type came first, and that type 
was pointing to something that would happen a long time later. Uh, Genesis chapter 22, that's another obvious one. Abraham and his son Isaac, how Abraham almost sacrifices his son up on that mountain. If you go and look at that story in depth, you see a lot of details that correspond to Jesus dying on the cross. For one thing, it takes place on the same hill where Jesus would hang on the cross. It was Mount Moriah. And there's many individual details we could go into that, you know, maybe we could do that sometime to show all the ways that that story is prefiguring Jesus and the cross. A lot of parallels right there, types and antitypes. Noah and the ark. There's a lot of parallels between Noah's flood and the judgments that are going to come upon the world in the book of Revelation. So those antitypes, those things far off in the future, they haven't even happened yet. Now, you could make also a lot of parallels with the ark and salvation. You know how Jesus was, uh, uh, we could say accepting the gospel is kind of like getting on an ark, you know, where the ark is a type and the gospel is the antitype. I think you could make that parallel too. Or the flood is a type, the eternal judgment of God is the antitype. You know, all these things can kind of, there's a lot of parallels you can find right there. I just tend to see it more with relating to the end times when I think of Noah and the flood and the ark and all that. Um, But there's lots of stories in the Old Testament that represent things that have a later meaning in the New Testament, and sometimes to, to our lives today right now, in some cases, even off in the future. And so the Bible calls these things types and shadows, such as in Romans 5.14, where it says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So it says right there in Romans 5, Adam was a type, okay? He was the, the one, the one who was to come was the antitype. That was Jesus. And there's a lot of parallels, if you look, between Adam and Jesus. Uh, you know, Adam lost the glory in a garden. Jesus went to a garden on the night of his trial and crucifixion. Both of them were tempted in a garden. Adam sinned because of a tree. Jesus was killed on a tree. Adam was naked and given clothes. Jesus was clothed and stripped naked. Adam blamed his wife. Jesus took the blame for his wife, which was the church. Adam was told that if he sinned, he would become like God. Jesus was God and he became a man, saved us from our sins. Adam spread death to all men. Jesus spread life to all men. So that's how typology works. It's patterns, okay? God gives us the elements and then he repeats them. Or sometimes God kind of turns them on their head and does the opposite. You know, that's why Adam is called a type of the one who was to come. Jesus was called the second Adam because they have parallels between each other. Um, that's how types and shadows work. So that's that's your introduction to typology. I, I like this quote from Chuck Missler. He has said often, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Uh, and so that's a, that's a helpful quote to kind of understand how we should look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they relate to each other, why there's still a lot of value in studying both of them. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. They say, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the types, these things were shadows of things yet to come. Think about how a shadow works. Okay, you have some kind of object and then there's a light behind it and it casts a shadow. And the shadow We know the shadow is not the important thing. The important thing is the object making the shadow. You know, where it's the the physical thing. The physical thing is casting a shadow. The shadow is not the greater reality. 
It's the physical object that's blocking the light. That's what makes the shadow. Okay? That's why the Bible calls these things shadows. When you look at an object with a shadow, sometimes you see the object first. Sometimes you see the shadow first. But either way, we understand when there's a shadow being cast, that means there's a physical object up there. And that's what the important thing really is. And so when it comes to biblical shadows and typology, if you're reading the Bible chronologically, oftentimes you see the shadows first, okay? Things like the food laws and the Sabbath regulations and the holidays. They, the, the Bible says those were all a shadow of Christ. They pointed to Christ. Now that Christ has come, you know, Paul is saying we don't have to do those things anymore because now we have the real thing. Paul's saying we don't have to follow like those Old Testament laws in regards to Sabbaths and all that. We don't have to follow that anymore. Because now we have the real physical thing. We have Christ. We don't need the shadow anymore. And so as we study these things in the Old Testament, we always got to keep a New Testament perspective and look at everything through kind of a Jesus lens. Because those things in the Old Testament, they're often shadows, whereas Jesus is the substance. So I hope you're following what I'm saying about types and shadows. These are, these are terms that come straight out of Scripture, okay? So if you feel like you got a good grasp of typology now, then what I want to do next, let's take a look at the story of Israel in the wilderness and what it teaches us about our lives today. Okay, so you've had your introduction there to typology. Now let's talk about how the story of Israel in the Old Testament, how this all corresponds to your Christian life today. There is a sequence of events that Israel went through, and I believe this is corresponding to the general experience of Christians, okay? And I'm not saying every Christian out there has the same experiences. I'm just, again, speaking in generalities today. So let's talk about Israel's story, just to recap it very briefly. You know, it starts with their slavery in Egypt, that they had become enslaved to their Christian neighbors and this had lasted for a few hundred years, okay? And so I'm going to just go through the details kind of quickly. I'm not going to take time for every last detail. But then Moses came and he set the people free. There was the whole 10 plagues. And that last one was the death of the firstborn, that the firstborn child of every person in Egypt was going to be killed. And the death angel was being unleashed on the nation. This was a judgment against Egypt because they would not let the people go free. But this judgment didn't just fall on the Egyptian households this was against every family who was in Egypt at that time. And, and so this was comprehensive. This was universal for, for Egypt. But there was made a way of escape that if you killed a lamb and spread its blood on the doorpost of your house, then the death angel would pass over your home. We mentioned this before. So Pharaoh loses his firstborn son that night. And you remember he's distraught. You know, he lets the people go. The Israelites pack up, they head towards the promised land. Someday in this promised land, it's going to be the land of the nation of Israel. And so they start heading that way. And while they're on their way there, they arrive at the Red Sea. And unfortunately, Pharaoh has changed his mind. He wants to come back after the people. So he comes back after them, and now they are cornered. They've got this big old sea behind them, and they don't know what to do. They're just stuck. They're going to be slaughtered. They're going to be taken back into captivity. I mean, they're... They have no hope right here until, and you know this if you've read your Bible or if you've seen the right Charlton Heston movie, you know what happened next. God split the sea 
and the Israelites were able to escape through the waters. And so after all that, you know, you'd think that their journey to the promised land, well, now it should be a cakewalk. <laughs> you know, they've got through the hard part, right? I mean, they God split the sea for them. And yet it wasn't that easy. They still had a lot of lessons that they needed to learn before they could enter the promised land. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, during that period, there's a lot of great stories that come out of that. A lot of great lessons. And um, they learn them. So finally, after 40 years, it is time to, to enter the promised land. And that is what they do. They have a second passing through the water experience. Most people forget about this one. But there's another parting of the waters at the Jordan River. And then they enter the land. And they fight the people out of it. They claim it for themselves. And then they take the promised land. And that's what the book of Joshua is largely about. So what I've been saying is really what's, it, what's ta- what takes place in the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Joshua. Those books right there kind of tell that whole history section that I just recapped. So what do all these things mean? Well, let's tell our own story of what happened as we became a Christian. And as we go through it, I want to talk about how it correlates with what Israel went through. So we begin our journey with God as lost. We are unsaved. We are uh, worldly is a word that you often hear. That's what, that's what slavery in Egypt is supposed to be a picture of. Someone who is a slave to the world. Israel in the Bible, or I'm sorry, Egypt. Egypt is often used as a type or as an example of the world, of, you know, worldliness, being unsaved, being unregenerate, okay, being worldly as opposed to being spiritual. Um, and slavery is, you know, sometimes used as a, uh, a, a type or example, a better word would be example here, an example of what it means to be unsaved, that you are a slave to sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6, 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free, have become slaves of righteousness. So Paul right there is, you know, he's making a contrast between being a slave to, to sin versus a slave to God. But, but back to this point here, sin is equated with slavery, okay? Just as the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, whenever we are unsaved and worldly, we are enslaved to our own passions, to our own sins. But then, as we know for, for Israel, Moses came in and he set the people free. Uh, just like Jesus came and set us free, Moses was a type for Jesus. And in Israel's story, the people were under a judgment, but they were all set free on the night of a Passover. See, God was going to bring his own judgment down on the people, but he also made a way for them to avoid it. And it was the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And I've already covered earlier how that corresponds to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And I'll just make one more point about that here. Just as the offer of the blood of the lamb was available to anybody, it only saved you if you actually put it on the doorpost of your house. And that's just like the blood of Jesus. It's offered freely to anyone to save them from their sins, but is not going to do you any good unless you accept it and apply it. And so Jesus corresponds right there to that Passover lamb. It's like when John the Baptist saw Jesus, you know, he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so in the general Christian life, 
well, I mean, any life, if you're a Christian, in a Christian life, you accept the blood of the lamb, and this is how you are saved. We call this salvation. We call this justification. Um, if you want to read more about the Passover lamb, I think it's Exodus chapters 12 and 13. And you can look at all those little details and how all the little details of the lamb, how its bones weren't broken, and how all these things point to Jesus. And, you know, we could spend some time doing that, but that would just be looking at the micro. Today, we're looking at the macro. We're taking the big picture look. Because I'm showing you how these, if you if you take a few steps back and look at the big picture, that also tells a story. So, they get out of Egypt, and they're saved now, okay? And what's the first thing that they do when they get out of slavery, when they're set free? The first thing that they do is they go pass through the waters of the Red Sea. Now, for us, what is the first thing that we do whenever we become Christians? We are told to get baptized. This is supposed to happen shortly after being saved. I know sometimes we put it off. <laughs> we don't make a big priority about baptism sometimes. But you know what? Shame on us. The Bible says believe and get baptized. Okay? Now, obviously, believing is more important than baptism because the belief is what saves you. But when you look at it in the New Testament commands, these things are often mentioned together. I mean, it's so often some churches actually, I think, get confused. They think you have to be baptized also just to be saved. Um, that's not, I think that's going a little too far, but I can understand why they think that because the New Testament ties those two things together so often. It, it, it clearly desires to see us get baptized ASAP after we become a believer. I always think of that story with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, the, the, the eunuch gets saved, and Philip is just immediately, immediately looking around. He's like, okay, now where's the creek? You know, is there a pond or something? Can we go get baptized here? And so, I, you know, I know we try to make a big deal about baptisms, and we want to make it a public event and all that. Uh, as you read in Acts 8, that's not what Philip is concerned about at all. You know, he's like, hey, let's go get in some water right now. <laughs> so, um, anyway... Right after you get saved, the expectation and what should happen is that you very soon get baptized. And so right after the Israelites got saved in the Exodus story, right after that, chapters 14 and 15, they cross the Red Sea, they pass through the water, and right that right there is a type or a picture of baptism. 1 Corinthians 10, starting at the beginning of, beginning of that chapter, it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so baptism, if we look at the Old Testament story, baptism corresponds to the Red Sea and how they pass through the waters. Now, you know, when you become a Christian, you get saved and you get baptized. Now, what happens to you after all that? Well, now you're in the trenches. Now you're in the spiritual life. And this corresponds to a wilderness in the Old Testament. There are lessons to be learned. It can be a long and dry walk at times. You know, you spend a long time, if you look at overall, you spend a long time being unsaved in your life, just like Israel spent a long time being slaves. And then you get saved, and that happens relatively quickly. You know, okay, it's like, boom, you're saved. It's instantaneous, really. And then baptism doesn't take that much longer. <laughs> you know, you go down, you go up, you're done. It's quick. It's exciting. And then you're in another long stretch of life. Okay, you're saved. 
but now you're in the wilderness. Now you're you're beginning the process of sanctification. You're learning how to live the Christian life. Sanctification is the process of becoming more Christ-like, and it's not instantaneous like salvation and baptism, unfortunately. Sanctification, that's really going to continue until the moment that you die. So, or get raptured. Um, but the, until, until, or until Jesus comes back, you know, you are in a lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus. We call that sanctification. And that's what Israel had to go through. That's what they're going through in their wilderness season. I heard it said before, I think again by Chuck Missler, that it took about 40 hours to get Israel out of Egypt, but it was going to take 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. What they had to do was unlearn the ways of the world and learn God's ways instead. And it took them 40 years to do it. You know, they had, they had to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. Everything that was worldly about them had to die. Uh, let me read another chunk of verses here. This is right after what I, what I read a moment ago from 1 Corinthians 10. I'll, I'll, re, I'll reread verse 2 and I'll just keep going. It said, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So, I know that was a big chunk of verses right there, but I kind of tried to, to emphasize, what was it saying? Don't do what they did. <laughs> Don't do this. Don't do this, as some of they did, as some of them did. Don't do that. Don't repeat their mistakes. Learn from their mistakes. So, all these things that Israel goes through, like in the book of Numbers, those are written there for us to learn from. And so that's what we're doing today. And whenever you become a new believer, that's what happens for you as you get into your wilderness season. Okay, and I don't mean wilderness like it's a really bad time in life. It's better than it used to be. But you got lessons to learn. Sanctification begins. And as I said, it lasts until you die. Um, but sanctification is not the end of the Christian journey. Uh, it doesn't have to be. Like, I, I think God has more in store for you than just kind of pounding all the, the bad stuff out. <laughs> uh, carving, you know, what what's the uh, the example the Bible uses sometimes or people use of um, sculptures. You know, they sculpt away the things, chisel away the things they don't want to be there. G God has to do that with all of us, but he has more in store for us than just that. And he had more in store for Israel. He wasn't just bringing them to the wilderness to leave them there. He had more things for them to do. So after 40 years of wilderness wanderings, after many hard-learned hard lessons, the people are ready to step into everything that God has for them. They are tired of struggling in their spiritual life. Their faith has been growing. They are ready to walk in the victory that God has in store for them. And so that's what they're going to do. I know televangelists use this, for, you know, they use phrases like walk in victory sometimes and I, I know I'm, I'm not talking. I know that kind of sullies that expression. I'm not talking about getting rich. I'm not talking about some kind of prosperity gospel thing. OK, I'm just talking about fulfilling God's plan for your life. 
All right, that's what I mean here by walking in victory, because I think you're going to be successful when you're doing what God has called you to do. Um, there's some Christians out there who don't get it. You know, they are saved, but their whole life is just a struggle. They're, they never buckle down and learn what God wants them to learn and grow their faith to the point where God can use them to their maximum potential. Um, there's a lot of Christians out there like that. And then there are Christians who finally say, hey, enough is enough. You know, I'm going to get control of these things. I'm going to get in alignment with God's purpose for my life. And so there's, there's, and that's what happens with Israel here. Okay. What now let's learn what makes the difference between someone who's just a struggling Christian in the wilderness and one who breaks into the promised land. Okay. So after 40 years, Israel is finally ready and they're, this is God's potential for them. This is God's blessing. This is God's gift. This is what God has. He's always had this promised land out there waiting for them, but they were not ready for it until now. Okay. Um, they had to learn these lessons first. It's like, you know, Jesus says, one who is faithful in little is faithful in much, and one who's dishonest in little is dishonest in much. And if you're not faithful in the small things, how are you going to be entrusted with the big things? You know, the, the true riches, as the Bible says, God has true riches for us. I'm not talking about just money. I don't even care about money. I want, I want God's true riches, okay? It doesn't need to be, I don't need to be rich. He's blessed me enough, I, but I want to know what is the potential for my life that I could walk in. And that's what I want to find. And so if you want to be a Christian who gets it, you got to enter the promised land. Now, some Bible teachers will tell you that going into the promised land means going to heaven. And, and I, they say that because they see the pattern like I've been going through. They see the pattern, but they think the promised land means you just get into heaven and now you, you're happily ever after. That is not true. The promised land is not heaven because the promised land is a fight. <laughs> the promised land has a lot of bad guys in it. So when you get to the promised land, you're not just, you know, you have not just like arrived and now you can rest on your laurels. You know, it's not like that. Okay. It's not, it's not heaven. Heaven's not going to have bad guys. The promised land does. And so to get it, getting into the promised land means you've got to go to war. But there, it's a good kind of war because the difference in fighting in the promised land versus fighting in the wilderness is that you win your battles in the promised land. So what I consider the promised land to be, it's not heaven. It's being a spiritually mature believer. Or another way I like to put it is living the victorious Christian life. I like that word victorious there. It means you have self-control. It means you are fulfilling God's promise uh, purposes and, and the calling that he's put on your life. Living in the promised land is living the victorious Christian life. One of my favorite, I get that phrase, I guess. There's a book called Victorious Christian Living. It is one of my top 10 favorite books of all time. It's by Alan Redpath. Uh, that's a, that was a life-changing book for me. Anyway, that's where I kind of get that title from. And it's a book about Joshua, The Victorious Christian Life. So that that is the book that will make the difference in a lot of, I'm sorry, living, not, well, that book could make a difference, but um what it means when you get to the promised land, that is what makes the difference for a lot of Christians. You know, you, you have Christians out there and day after day, they're going back to pornography. They got a cussing problem. They got some kind of sin that they just can't get control of. Okay. And um, there's Christians all over churches like that. And you, maybe that's you who's listening. I'm not saying that you aren't saved, but I'm saying you're a Christian who's in the wilderness. You're not a Christian in the promised land. Okay. You aren't living that victorious Christian life. You're not walking in all those things that God has for you. 
So you need to learn those lessons. You need to get get those things, maybe get some other things under control. And then you can finally step into all that God has in store for you. So sanctification, you know, it starts in the wilderness. It doesn't necessarily end in the wilderness because you still have battles to fight once you get to the promised land. But now you're fighting them on a different level than what you used to. Okay, so that's how I see the difference in the two things there. And there's a big transition right in the middle of all that. What did Israel have to do so that they could get into the promised land? Well, you see them make this shift at the beginning of the book of Joshua. They start getting led by a new leader. Um, In fact, you could probably make a big deal out of this. that The name Joshua, he's the new leader, and his name means Jesus. It's the Hebrew name of Jesus, which is Yeshua. And so they stop being led by Moses because he dies, and they begin being led by Yeshua. And he leads them into the promised land. Now, most people don't realize this, but there's another crossing of the water right here. And the water is once again split, just like it was back at the Red Sea. And so in Joshua chapters, is like chapter three, chapter four, they cross the Jordan River so they can enter the promised land. It says in Joshua 3, 14, I'm going to read a chunk of verses here. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood in rows in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So it says right there, they crossed the water again. It was just like the Red Sea crossing. The waters were supernaturally split by God, and the people were able to pass through. Now, remember what the Red Sea crossing corresponded to in the Christian life. Do you remember? The crossing of the Red Sea corresponded to baptism. We made that very clear. And so they've already been baptized. Why is there a second baptism right here? Well, let me put this out there. Could it be that there is a second baptism in the Christian life? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> there happens to be a second baptism that the New Testament talks about. It's called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that will make the difference for your Christian life. The baptism in the Holy Spirit, that's when the Holy Spirit fills you to overflowing. It's a supernatural encounter with God. I mean, I could tell you my story. I, I think I actually, I think I did back in June, if I remember. <laughs> so I, I forgot, but uh, I think I did do an episode back in June where I talked about what happened when I was filled with the Spirit. And when you are filled with the Spirit of God, God does something to you that I cannot explain, but it changes you. It, it makes you more passionate for God. It makes you more zealous to share the gospel. He gives you a power and a boldness that you didn't have before. Um, sometimes he'll give you spiritual gifts that you can use to benefit the church. Sorry, my voice is getting a little hoarse here. I'm not choking up. It's uh, it's allergy season. I got a headache today. Like I, I, I rarely get headaches, but this is the week that the, the temperature's dropping 20 degrees in one week's time. So <laughs> this is when all the allergy stuff hits for me. So I'm getting a little gargly here, but I'll try to make it through this. Um, okay, what was I talking about? Spiritual gifts. 
you know, when you get baptized in the spirit, the Lord will give you spiritual gifts sometimes. And, and that is for the benefit of the church. And so, um, being baptized in the Holy spirit, Jesus calls it a baptism and a baptism means to be submerged. Uh, that sometimes the Bible also calls it being filled with the spirit. And so this is a part of the Christian life. This is meant to happen. What happened to Israel after their second baptism? Well, let me read what verse 16 said again. The people passed over opposite Jericho. And I say that because we all know what happened at Jericho. They started winning. They started hearing from God more clearly. They started, you know, they started doing some things that didn't make human sense. It didn't make logical sense, but yet doing those things, God blessed it and they won. They started kicking butt and taking names. If you get to the end of Joshua, you see that they took a lot of names and they took the land. And that's what's going to happen for you too. When you receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, you will start hearing God more clearly. He's going to lead you to do things that, that don't always make sense. And yet whenever you obey, you have massive victories and God blesses you for it and you will live a victorious Christian life. Well, we're going to close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application. Actually, I think I've kind of got through the personal application as we gone through it. So, um, You've received that, I hope. But if you appreciate today's Bible study, you could show your appreciation by uh, one, number one, first and foremost, if you could just say a prayer that more people will find it. And if you want to share it with somebody, you can do that. If you could leave a like or a a positive review, that helps at all in the, I guess, the algorithm stuff. Um, Anyway, if you say a prayer, I'm very grateful for that. If you have a question on anything I talked about today, you can leave a comment or shoot me an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And make sure you are subscribed so you can get the episodes coming up in the future because I got some good stuff coming uh, down the pike. I had some good feedback on a comment that I made a few episodes ago. And I talked about, um, I was talking a few episodes back about the CBDC, that's the central bank digital currency, and and that it's something I believe the Antichrist could use to control the population of the world during the tribulation period. And so I was talking about that and how that, I was saying it couldn't, it's probably going to be a few more years before they could get CBDC even going. And so that could, I, I use that as a reason that the, the Antichrist could still probably be a few years away because of that. Anyway, um, a listener named Joe, and he's from Fuquay, Verena in North Carolina. Um, I, I worked hard on saying that correctly. <laughs> he told me this, the CDBC doesn't have to be ready until the second half of the tribulation, most likely. I think people won't have to worship the beast or take the mark until the Antichrist declares himself to be God at the midpoint. So the buying and selling based on the mark is when a CBDC is required. So um, anyway, he said that I think that was a really good point um, that, you know, the rapture could happen today and the CDBC, however you say it, it wouldn't necessarily be for a few more years uh, because the mark of the beast isn't probably going to happen until like the second half of the tribulation. So that was a really good point from Joe. And uh, so thank you to him for that comment. And also thank you to him for his his frequent words of encouragement. Um, he's part of what sounds like is a terrific church out there in Fuquay, Verena. And that's right next to Raleigh in North Carolina. So thank you to Joe. Next time on this podcast, I'm going to get back into my Ezekiel study. Um, we have finished the first half of that book. 
where we got the first 24 chapters of the book done. That has been a distinct pleasure, a real joy to study that book with you all. And we still got half of it to go. The second half is going to probably go quicker than the first half did. But um, before we get into it, I want to do a reflection episode on that first half of the book of Ezekiel. I know some people haven't got into the podcast until here more recently. And so there's a lot of good stuff we had in that first, um, those first, uh, we've done like 41 episodes on the book of Ezekiel. And I would like to just kind of recap what some of those, the high points were in case you would like to go back and, and revisit some of those episodes. I could point you in the direction of, of what you're interested in. So we'll do that next time. Let's go ahead and recap what we talked about today. If you need a recap, but we talked about how the story of Israel in the Old Testament, how this has a correspondence, this has a parallel with the general expectation for a Christian life today um, in the New Testament time, we might say. Yes, the New Testament is written, but we live in the New Covenant, so we are New Testament believers. But anyway, Egypt, that corresponded to being unsaved, that when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, that was a picture of what it means to be unregenerate, lost, worldly, a slave to your sins, okay? But then there was, Moses came along and there was the Passover, and this was the night that they got delivered. You know, this was this was what corresponded to salvation or justification, is that the death angel, if you applied the blood of the lamb, the death angel passed over your home and, and you were saved. And so this was the salvation of Israel, and this is corresponds to our salvation whenever we become believers. Then right after they got saved, then they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. And this was something that parallels baptism because it's passing through the waters. And then they get into the wilderness and those wilderness wanderings for 40 years. That is a parallel of the sanctification process that once we get saved, we start on the Christian journey and it, you know we got lessons to learn. We got st- God is hammering out the ways of, of Egypt, the worldliness in our lives, and putting his ways into us. And so they, they go through that period until they learn those lessons that, that they needed to learn. And then they have a second baptism. They cross through the waters of the Jordan River. And once again, God splits the sea because he's making a parallel here. It's another, it's another baptism. But this one is the baptism. It parallels the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Because as they pass through these waters, now they're marching into the promised land. And the promised land is a parallel of spiritual maturity. It's the victorious Christian life. You fight some more battles, but you win these battles, you take ground, and you start living, um, you're more of a a conqueror. Romans 8 says we are more than conquerors. But you know, you start actually, you get a handle on things. You've learned those lessons you needed to learn in the wilderness, and now you're stepping into the better things that God has in store for you. And so this is the picture you get as you study the the wilderness wanderings and the whole story of Israel, and you look at them as on kind of a micro level. Uh, I'm sorry, a macro level. Macro means the big picture, okay? And it's good to look at things on the macro scale. If I had just said, hey, the Jordan River, you know, that that account in Joshua chapter three and four, that's, a, that's kind of a story about baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I could have done a lesson about that. I could have done an episode talking about that. And then you could have said, oh, okay, well, that's that's kind of interesting, but but, but but why? You know, what what's the point? What's why is there a story about that right here in kind of a random place of the Old Testament? What what's the point of it being there? Well, the placement of that story in relation to everything else that was going on in Israel's history, that is the point. 
You know, it, it wouldn't have made sense to put that story right before the wilderness season because Holy Spirit empowerment is not supposed to lead us into a wilderness season. It's supposed to lead to a victorious season. And so it's not just the stories themselves that can teach us things, but even if you look at the placement of stories in the Old Testament, even that is teaching us something. And I'll mention this too. There, the, this is all corresponding to the general pattern of a Christian's life. I know some people, they get, they get saved and then they get baptized in the Holy Spirit. It all happens like it, it, on the same day for some people. And that's not the, I know that happens at times. For most of us, there was a gap of time between those two things. And so um, th- this is just kind of speaking in generalities here today. Okay. And I'll mention something else too, I, as we're closing down here today. Um, Just because this was Israel's experience, you know, be careful in your life as a Christian once you get to the promised land that you don't go back to that wilderness lifestyle because you're supposed to be living in a new way by that point, having learned the lessons of before. You can go back into bondage as a Christian. There are Christians all over this world who go back into the wilderness. And so let me admonish you on that too. Don't do that. Once you make it to the promised land, keep marching forward, live victoriously, rely on the Holy Spirit, and keep walking in the victory that God has for you. I appreciate you tuning in today. I pray that God blesses you and thanks for staying till the end. This has been Luke Taylor and I hope the Bible makes more sense to you after this episode.